welcome into the Weekly Appellate Report, the Daily Journal's weekly podcast featuring commentary and analysis from California practitioners, jurists, and academics on all things appellate law. This week's show examines two California Supreme Court cases, one that just commenced and another ruled upon Monday, both entail employment law and, and the interpretation of various California statutes, one dating back to the 19th century. First, Wendy McGuire Coates of Fisher and Phillips will discuss Monday's ruling in Mendoza v. Nordstrom, in which the High Court answered three questions certified by the Ninth Circuit pertaining to California's Day of Rest statutes, which forbid employers, with certain exceptions, from causing employees to work a full seven-day work week without a day off. At issue was whether a rolling seven-day period was the measuring stick, which would mean at no time could an employee work more than six consecutive days, or rather whether a fixed Monday to Sunday type work week was the standard, meaning an employee with a, an early day off one week and a later day off the next week might work more than seven consecutive days, but overall would still get two days off during those two weeks. The high court went with the latter interpretation, finding it more in harmony with the state's overall statutory scheme. Another question addressed was exactly what it means for an employer to cause an employee to work a seventh consecutive day. Is merely allowing an employee to work that day tantamount to causing them to do so? making that a violation of the day of rest statute? Or does an employer only cause an employee to work if some coercion is applied? The Cal Supreme Court essentially split the difference between those two proposed takes, finding that employers could allow employees to work a seven consecutive day, say if an employee wants to pick up an extra shift, but the employer could not encourage or compel an employee to do so. And the unanimous court held that employers must make sure to apprise employees as to their right to take that day of rest. Next, we'll hear from Gonzalo Martinez of Squire, Patton, and Boggs examines a case just granted review, another case involving some unhappy employees. This case, Cal Fire Local 2881 vs. CalPERS, sees a firefighter's union suing after the state legislature changed a law that allowed them to purchase an amount of service time, employment time, over and above what they'd actually served in order to boost their eventual pension plans. The union argued this change violated the California Constitution's contract clause because it nullified their vested right to purchase those credits. The trial and appellate courts felt differently, and now the high court will weigh in. Before we get to my guest, so let me first remind you, as always, that CLA credit is available for your having tuned into the program. Find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. With that, let's hear from my first guest, Wendy McGuire Coates, talking about the case ruled upon Monday from the California Supreme Court, Mendoza v. Nordstrom. I'm very happy to welcome into the podcast now Wendy McGuire Coates, a partner and certified specialist in appellate law with Fisher Phillips in San Francisco. Ms. McGuire Coates, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. So we're talking about a a case out of the California Supreme Court that came down Monday. And among other things, the California Supreme Court here is sort of defining what what a week is, uh, at least in the context of Mm -hmm. state statutes mandating that California employees get a weekly day of rest. Um, This case got to the California Supreme Court in a somewhat convoluted way that the Ninth Circuit certified a few questions for the California Supreme Court to answer because this case centers around those state statutes, the day of rest statutes. So perhaps let's start there. What what are these statutes, these day of rest laws, and what do they provide for? Absolutely. So we're we're really looking at three, but then kind of an add-on of four of these labor code sections that that entitle employees um, by the language of the statute in that regards um, to the day of rest. So the the statutes in play were by the decision ultimately included Labor Code Section uh, 510A, which, as we just touched on, requires that any work in excess of eight hours on any seventh day of a work week shall be compensated at a rate of no less than twice regular rate of pay for the employee. And I think you know, more importantly, if we kind of jump into this, that it really becomes this question of compensation of the employee. How's that calculated? And, and and that's really why this became important. The the substantive statutes that we start looking at are Labor Code um, 551 and 552, which in 551, it really gives us that entitlement to one day's rest. And it, the language is quite old school because this is an 1890 statute. So it says, uh, one day's rest therefrom in seven. And that's kind of where we get this question of what is what is the week. And then Labor Code 552, which then also goes on to state that no employer or, of labor shall cause his employees to work more than six days in seven. And if I kind of dovetail back to say, you know, you're correct, but this one up um, from a case that originally started in state court was removed to federal court 
Um, there was then a bench trial um, at the state court or in the district court, and then it popped up on appeal to the Ninth Circuit, in which case, through briefing, the Ninth Circuit then certified three these three specific questions. Now, those are not exactly the perfect three questions that the California Supreme Court decided to answer, but um, the three questions that the court was asked to consider were first, um, in relation to 551, um, that provides this entitlement to a day of rest. Um, the Ninth Circuit asked the California Supreme Court, is the required day of rest calculated by the work week or is it a calculated on a rolling basis for any consecutive day period? And the, the easiest way for me to kind of think about that is that the employer is scheduling all of his or her employees kind of on a weekly basis as opposed to having to consider the specific scheduling dates for each individual employee and whether or not that employee has worked a total of seven. That's that rolling basis. It's kind of almost like an employee-employee um, scheduling as opposed to scheduling everybody within the work week. Uh, the second question looks at 556, and we'll probably talk about that a little bit later, but this gets into an exemption. So while there's an entitlement um, for the hours worked and the days worked, um, to have the seventh day or a, a seventh day off. Um, that doesn't apply if an employee tripped into the exemption. And we kind of think of that as the six-hour exemption. It kind of talks about in shorthand that way. But the, the Ninth Circuit asked very specifically, does this exemption apply when an employee works less than six hours in any one day of the applicable week? Or does it apply only when the employee works less than six hours in each day of the week? And traditionally, up to this point, if an employee was um, worked one day in that six-hour or lower threshold, um, they were tripped into the exemption. And so this kind of what we'll call premium bonus pay in that regard, this premium pay for working on the seventh day didn't trigger. And then the last one um, with 552 really looks at this, what does it mean for the employer to cause the employee um, to work more than six days and seven? And in fact, that's exactly how the Ninth Circuit phrased it. it asked, what does it mean for an employer, quote, to cause an employee to work more than six and seven? And they even gave examples such as, is it force, coerce, pressure, is scheduling, encouraging, rewarding, maybe even encouraging or permitting um, is that the same to equate for cause, in which case the employer would have to pay the um, the premium penalty? Okay, uh, maybe sort of grounding these questions in fact a little bit more, we'll take a look at the underlying yep. case here. Uh, who are the plaintiffs and why do they feel that the, the scheduling practices of their employer, Nordstrom here, um, violated the day of rest laws? Um, you know, the, the Nordstrom employees in this regard kind of really model um, good examples of employees working in um, any kind of service industry or hourly with, with an hourly paycheck in this regard. And that um, one of the employees worked as a barista and a sales representative at Nordstrom. Another one was a sales associate. And so in a lot of situations, they're scheduled for blocks or shifts at a time on different days. And um, in this one specifically, you had... Um, Mendoza, who would say, well, she would get scheduled for a certain period of time, but then it wasn't unusual for her to get asked by Nordstrom to fill in for another employee who, um, you know, either didn't show or wasn't coming in. or um, And so that kind of being asked to fill in and take on additional shifts. And that, that factually, you know, she as a candidate showed that she worked, you know, more than six consecutive days in a row and met... Um, you know, met, the, met the timing thresholds in this regard. Similarly, uh, Gordon is kind of when we, we really have two cases that kind of paired together because we have the consecutive day question, and then we also have if they've worked that many days, what are the hours associated? And so Gordon was of someone who uh, might have worked more than six days, but not all of the shifts lasted more than six hours. So they were falling under that um Exemption. They were falling into the exemption threshold. Yeah. So if the answer to that question is, yeah, only one day needs to be worked under six hours, that triggers the exemption. Then it would be okay for her to not get premium pay on the seventh day. But in the alternative, the premium pay would be required. Right. And actually, that's what happened at the district court. Um, you know, the district court held that 
had a two-day bench trial on this question, and the district court level found in favor of Nordstrom's for one of those two reasons. And the first one being that the plaintiffs had worked less than six hours on one of their consecutive days. Hmm. And and then therefore, as a consequence, they were not entitled to the day of rest, like kind of period. They hadn't tripped up over into the entitlement. And then on the second, and that's where we get the kind of the third question that the Ninth Circuit ultimately asked um, the California Supreme Court to determine um, the, tr- the district court also found that the plaintiffs had voluntarily worked, which more than the six days, um, and that Nordstrom's had not required or caused them to do it, that there may maybe been an invitation or the spot had opened up, um, and that offering it or making it available was different than the, quote, cause requirement. Okay. How about the, the third question um, at the district court level? What was the, the ruling there as to whether we're talking about a, a static sort of Monday to Sunday work week or a rolling seven-day basis? On the way the district court looked at it, the day of rest statutes only permit prohibited employer from requiring, well, requiring that employee to work for more than the six consecutive days. And the, the look back um, kind of, it didn't really come in as close to defining what the work week was. Then the, the district court sort of accepted it. And that's kind of where the, as it came up on the appellate level, where the real question started to percolate in, well, how do we calculate the work? Do we just look back six days? Um, and, in, and from a factual basis here, the when they'd look back, if they were under the exemption, we weren't even touching it. Right. So then the question becomes like, OK, well, we're going to actually change. And that's kind of what happened to the Ninth Circuit. Um, the Ninth Circuit kind of flipped two things. One, it, it asked kind of an initial question that hadn't really been as front and center in play with the, with the district court. And that was and, and kind of the basis of the ruling. The first question of like, well, what, where and how do we start the calculation to begin with? Instead of getting first to the exemption, whether the exemption applies, um, really defining this question of work week. And as you notice, or if you're looking or following the cases, or noticing that the 551 and 552 don't really use the language of the word week. We kind of now are talking about it that way, but they really are talking about numbers, one and seven, um, six days and seven. So those two statutes on their face aren't even using the, the word week as a language, um, which is kind of why we end up with the California Supreme Court decision. But the Ninth Circuit uh, really said, well, kind of say we have to get this egg before we get to the chicken question. And that is how in the, how first will we even calculate where the entitlement and the requirement comes in? Sure. So, yeah, that, that's the leading question here. It seems to be mm-hmm. maybe the main one. We'll, we'll go ahead and, and get to the ruling then that issued on, on Monday. And maybe just at the top here in, in broad strokes, could you describe what the California Supreme Court's Answers were to these three questions, and then we'll take one, each one individually, and walk through their their reasoning. You know, it, it's kind of this um, self-reflective question in some regards because it is the question of like, what is a work week? Right. And 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 to a large extent, the California Supreme Court looked and said, well, the statutes on their face do not define them in a way for us for the purposes of the calculation. Um, as a very practical matter, I think what such a good example is the the Ninth Circuit when it sent the request over um, laid out even like with a chart. I mean, adding graphics to their uh, to their question of giving an example of what a schedule would look like that would cause a person to work more than seven days or seven days or more than seven days if you were using a rolling schedule um, and just calculating any days in, in between. To, to determine whether the statute applied where the the kind of set work week where you have a regular work week that's calculated, say, Monday to Sunday, and it restarts. So each week's going to restart over. So you could have the end of week one, an employee working, and then they begin to work on week two and, and not have a day of break in between, but that their day of rest so to speak, fell somewhere within the seven days, not necessarily it being the seventh day. Right. So then the California Supreme Court's answer to the question is, we're talking about a, a, a set work week. Absolutely. And that's where the, that's where the, the, the California Supreme Court 
you know, ultimately came out is that employers are in a position and the way we're going to look at these statutes is that they're intended to be with a set regular work week that, that the employer, the employer gets to decide when that work week starts and when it ends. So that can be, you know, you know, Sunday to Saturday or Monday to Sunday or Tuesday back to Monday, however they're doing their scheduling week, but that it's not, uh, when we're using the work week, we're not talking about just the individual employees work week to where there's this kind of rolling of every seven days you have this day off, depending, regardless of when you started working. Um, and, and really what I think, you know, it's kind of very interesting when you follow the history of the, um, is that where the, where these cases, where this kind of statutory question came from, that historically we had statutes in the state of California that prohibited businesses from being open on a specific day of the week. It, the, the mandate for the day of rest, um, yeah, and typically, um, it's coming out of the Sabbath, the Sabbath and the, the religious observations that were taking place. And so to some extent, um, they were all where businesses were closed on Sunday and it was, they were prohibited from being opened. Um, and so employees were off. And then, uh, as you know, student of history recognized that not everybody's Sabbath is on Sunday and that was in conflict. Um, and so you have a history of the, of the statute providing, first it was providing a specific day of the week, day of rest. Right, was Sunday. Uh, then you have some challenges to that and kind of opening up um, other days. And if we think of the Jewish tradition, it was the Saturday, Friday night to Saturday. And then even more opening up so that you have the statute being modified in, in the late eight, or early 1890s to, and as the Supreme Court notes, to remain agnostic, um, that it's providing that there is the different denominations have different uh, days of observance and allowing and protecting, really, not just allowing, but protecting um, employees to have this day of rest off of work, but that when when that day happens, it's kind of at their election or within um, coordination with their employers. So we moved away from kind of requiring everybody to be off on a specific day of the week, regardless of their religious tradition or no, or no tradition at all, to then really just kind of still encapsulating that there is this benefit to having a day of rest at some period sure. in that work week. What uh, what exactly leads the, the court to reach its decision that we're talking about a static Monday to Sunday type work week when we're requiring a, a day of rest? They say that obviously the, the statutory language that you discussed a bit is, is manifestly ambiguous. So they, they look at some uh, industrial wage commission Wage orders. Could you tell me exactly what uh, what sort of guidance they glean from these orders, um, and why it leads them to their interpretation here? Well, yeah, and I think you know um, if if people aren't um, kind of more versed in the in the labor employment sector, they might not be um, quick to recognize what we're, what we're calling the industrial welfare commission's wage orders. However, they probably have seen these all the time. And that's, that's what I kind of find really interesting in the discussion of the cases. Um, so the Industrial Wage Commission um, was established in 1913, and it was created to regulate both the wages, the hours, and working conditions in, in California, but it was also specifically um, dedicated to protecting women and children at that point. Um, and so you kind of think, like, so this came out in 1919, so we're a few decades past um, the creation of the statute. Uh, it, and so they're looking to to these wage orders. Now, another thing that the California Supreme Court notes, and I think what people would find interesting, is that the these wage out these wage orders are considered and treated on par with and equal to uh, the statutes in the labor code that have been. Um, promulgated by the legislature. And so there's these 18 wage, wage orders. In fact, when I, um, you know, say to people, they might not be familiar reading it, but these are the 18 wage orders that are like required to be posted in all employer work areas. So these are the, the posters that are up in like the break rooms, right? <laughs> and, and those wage orders are up. So like we're actually in a lot of employment contexts, um, we see these all the time. Um, but might not kind of really know 
where they came from and how and how they came to be. And so this um, the the wage order that 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 the California Supreme Court looks to looks and says, well, as far as the wage order was concerned, there has always been a day of rest that's been calculated on a set week regular schedule. In fact, unlike the statutes that kind of were ambiguous because they don't define it in that regard, that the wage order defined it as work week specifically as seven consecutive days starting with the same calendar day of each week and that a work week is a fixed and regularly recurring period of 168 hours of seven consecutive 24-hour periods. And it's that kind of tight definition that has the California Supreme Court say that that when we're now looking to the statute that had come up with this wage order, that this is what they understood it to mean. They didn't understand it at the time that it was there to be a rolling. They understood it to be as a fixed, regularly recurring um, date that was fixed on the calendar. It's sort of interesting to to think back to that point and sort of muse. Perhaps the reason why this question wouldn't even come up then is because, as you say, when the the statute and these wage orders originate, maybe the, the day of rest statutes tend to be on a Sunday. So whichever way you interpret it, right. rolling or work week, it's always going to be Sunday. So every seventh day, you're going to get one. Um, right. Like, And in some respects, you might not even have the opportunity to go work at your job that day because right. the job was prohibited from being open. Right. Uh, now, one of the, the more recent statutes, and you, you touched on it, I think it's 510 pertaining to, to overtime, when and how much you have to pay employees working the seventh day out of seven. Uh, there's some interaction between that statute and the ones principally at issue when we're talking about this rolling or set uh, question. And the court notes that the best way to, to have them work together is to, to end up with this set work week definition. So why, why is that the conclusion they reach? Well, and from an appellate standpoint, I think also, you know, the, the California Supreme Court is, is interpreting, right? That's, that's their role at this point, to interpret, interpret and explain how um, these statutes should be applied in, in, in everyday practice. But one of the underlying principles here is that because the wage hour or the wage orders are on par with and comparable to the labor code, that they have a duty to interpret them in a way that, and you'll see it in the language, that they harmonize them together so that both have are given effect and one wouldn't cancel out the other or one becomes superfluous, just to, would have no effect. Um, and the rolling, the you know, interpreting it to have the rolling, um, well, one, it would, if you had a rolling date, you're calculating your work week on a rolling, you would absolutely be taking out the language that says, there's a consecutive seven days. They start on the calendar day, and they are fixed regularly recurring periods. Right? That it that it's looking to say a week starts and stops at certain times. You know, there is a there is a first day of the week and a last day of the work week, um, and that employers can pick which is the first day of the week, right, and, and schedule accordingly. But that not all of the employees have different first days of the week. Right. That makes sure. You know, yeah. that, and that, and that rolling, and that rolling approach would do that. It would cause each employee to be kind of in the middle of a work week every time they started, you know, every time they started after a day off. Right. right? Like they had picked back up. Sure. And that would be actually the opposite of a regular fixed recurring period. Sure. I suppose uh, the, the court sets up and then sort of knocks down a couple of the, the most salient counter arguments. Um, here that the plaintiffs brought, um, one being that, you know, the, the nature of the one day of rest and, and seven, you know, suggests that's what a person should get. And so in, in the set work week setup, you could have your day off on week one be Monday and the day off on week two be Saturday. And so you're working however many days that is, 11 or 12, 12 um, right. days straight. Um, the court acknowledges right. that, but says, you know, that's just not convincing and that doesn't went over the argument. Why Why not? Well, I think it also, they look to say, too, that they also are starting to look at the, not just the week, but you're looking at the month as a whole, mm-hmm. too. And that um, the, the the day of rest isn't, and, and maybe that, I mean, I think kind of from, even from a practical standpoint, isn't intended to be um, that you just count one, two, three, four, five, six, and then the seventh is off, mm-hmm. and, and, and so forth. That... Um, that the 
that it's also not even, I would say there's entitlement, but that it's not just the dictate that they're off forever. The language in the, in the, both the statutes and the court discussion notes that, um, there is a, uh, acceptance that situations will dictate that people won't have the day off. And that's when the premium pay will kick in. And so the, the, the concept that, I mean, I think that's the thing is, is there a concern that someone would work more than 12? And the answer is no, because part of it is looking and saying, but you can look and say that there is the day off at some point. Now, if there were no days off, does that start changing the calculus? Like, yes. But it's not just this, this, it's not the viewpoint that, um, continuing to work is just deemed bad. Right. Like that's, that's not it. So I think the palpable concerns on the, well, could, would there be circumstances where people work more than 12 or 12 or more and, or straight without that break, um, wasn't as much of a, probably much of a problem because on the calendar, you could still account for where the days off did in fact occur. Then that, that question settled, we could go ahead and address the, the next two certified questions, the, the second one being the, the six-hour rule exemption, the one that, that yeah. triggers if uh, you work one day under six hours or the alternative definition is it tr- triggers if you work all other six days under six hours. How did the uh, the court uh, answer this question? Well, and so in this regard, this is where the narrowing took place. So if um, I'd say if employers are happy and generally at ease, with the with the fluidity and the flexibility that they have to know and how they can plan and schedule um, the exemption, uh, I think up to this point had been applied broader than it is now. To where um, it, it, it used to be that if you only had one of those days that you would work under that six hours, um, you kind of got exempted out of this whole conversation. And the court looking and saying, no, um, it's not just one day kind of get out of jail free card. I think it's the easiest way to kind of think of it. That they're really looking to say, um, really do all of those days fall under that threshold. And, and looking at there's the hours component and being able to say, we're going to look at both of them as options as opposed to having only one be the way they're going to calculate it. What do you mean when you say the, we're talking about the hours um, analysis, is that, that also refers to, I think, a, another section that relates to overtime, and there's another exemption where if you don't work over 30 hours, then overtime's not required or something like that? Right, and and they even, right, and I think you get about, you, you have about halfway through uh, the decision, the, the court starts to note that whether or not, um, that they haven't really been asked this question, right? They say um, that the Ninth Circuit didn't ask them on whether uh, the 556 exception should be read disjunctively or conjunctive. Can you can you do either or, right? Do either one of these um, trip you out? And and they basically look and say that kind of in this situation, like both work. Um, it neither contravenes um, the, the understanding of the statute and why it's there. I think that... Um, that overlaps with uh, overtime pay. It, it is still going to. It's going to create quite some questions. I mean, when they, especially from the um, kind of the dictum. It's not really dictum, but it is a little bit. And that they're answering a question that they haven't been asked to answer. Um, but they're they're at least finding it that it's not a barrier to entry to um, to evaluate it sure. in this context. So maybe put. Concisely, the an employee that works essentially over six hours any of those days, then on the seventh day is is entitled to a, a day of rest. Right, and I think what what really the exception when the narrowing is. I think that's where it comes back to is what are they trying to protect? Right, they're really trying to protect that um, that you don't have a situation where like an employee has worked, um, you know, eight hours, and then on for five of the six days. And then work just barely six on one day mm-hmm. and then didn't, wasn't in the exempt, right? Like, cause that, that's where the protection seemed to, to undercut it. Um, they were going to get so much, um, kind of pulling people out 
to, to not really, um, I want to give, to give the spirit of what the, what the statute was supposed to provide in the first place. Okay. Well then wrap up with the, the last question here, which when it answers the question mm-hmm. as to what it means to cause an employee to work a seventh day out of seven. Um, obviously the employers would contend for a definition that's fairly uh, narrow that to cause an employee to work, they have to really be seen to compel them or sort of force them. Employees would want the, the broader interpretation where to cause could mean anything up to just allowing an employee to work that seventh day out of seven, which would then be a violation. Mm-hmm. So uh, where where does the court come down on what it means to, to cause? Well, and I think you're right. I think that, that coercion word was really interesting because I think it really was starting, I mean, the... The, the Nordstrom position that was advocated here was really quite extreme in that regard of, um, you know, of the definition of to cause and, and the level of coercion or force even, right? The, the forcing to work in that regard. Um, and, and, and it is kind of a middle of the road because it be, does begin to kind of recognize that employees and employers work at some level collaboratively on the, on the schedule that, um, employees might decide and elect to cover someone else's shift, switch days with someone so that they are working more or, or pick up extra shifts, and that if a, an employer permits that, right, and I mean, they use like kind of passive language, um, that they permit it, that, that that is not, allowing a person to work is not the equivalent of causing them to work in a, in a, in a coercive sense in that regard. That, but it does rem- remind, and I think that's where we already kind of had this with the wage hour, with the orders and that the employer has an obligation to let their employees know that they are entitled to a day of rest, that that they don't have to volunteer for that extra shift if they don't want to. Um, And, 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 you know, this tension of they, they may not encourage their employees to forego it, but they, or hide the fact that they can take the time off. um, But they, but they can permit it if those people choose to, but it's waivable and it's waivable without a penalty to the employer. Right. And, 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 and I, I think too, even more, um, when we kind of even reach all the way back, right, to where when the businesses were closed and working wasn't even an option, mm-hmm. right, that that there was zero flexibility in that regard, both for the employer and the employee on, to to work at all on that day in that regard, um, where um, in today's workforce, but both by the size of the workforce, the, the hours, the people, that businesses, good example of like hours at Nordstrom's open, um, that that employers need as well as employees want the scheduling flexibility um, to, I would say, kind of cooperatively come to when they work and, and why they work, especially if there is the desire to pick up those extra shifts and, and to know that, that they aren't, but again, to know that they aren't required to pick up those extra shifts. And I think that's where the rubber will meet the road in a lot of ways. Yeah. So if, allow was seen as tantamount as to cause then if an employee just really wanted mm-hmm. to work that extra shift uh, on a seventh day out of seven and if the employer allowed it then that would violate the the statute under under that approach so we, we don't have that but it does seem right, like we don't have that. it does seem like it, it could be in a practical reality in in the workplace situation a bit of a fine line between an employee encouraging and an employer i'm sorry an employer encouraging Versus yeah, an employer right. allowing an employee to come take shifts, you know, like if you like post a, a calendar of people's schedules on the board and allow people to sign up, is it posting it encouraging? Do you think that fine line could see right. some some litigation in the future? Well, you know, um, I would. It's those it's fact patterns, right? Like the specificity of the fact pattern of how um, cases come uh, to be, but it are 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 really quite similar with um, like most all labor and employment issues generally, right? <laughs> like it, the, cause it's at, at a, at a certain point, just even like this with the scheduling, it really becomes, um, a fact-based relationship between the employer and the employee, um, in, in all sorts of situations. So in that regard, um, while it might not be a clear, um, direct line, I and mean, I think what you do have though, is you have the um, requirements that the, uh, you know, the wage and hour or the wage order uh, are posted. We already have that. You already you have a kind of dynamic where the employee needs to be um, made aware that, you know, that this isn't a requirement. Um, 
and and that the employer has this apprise, you know, this obligation to apprise them that this is an option, um, but not, you know, I'd say probably the fact that they're able to schedule themselves in situations, whether it's they move around shifts or switch shifts, um, that's the exact kind of flexibility that we need and want in our workforce, um, and that employers need, and 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 in a large extent, it's very beneficial to the employees, right? That they're able to swap shifts or cover for each other. Um, pick up extra shifts if it's from a monetary standpoint to have the opportunity to, to make more. And, and so what this is, what this is, um, this interpretation was at the California Supreme Court level essentially does say that, um, that the employer doesn't have to prohibit the employee from working those extra days if they voluntarily and, and that, and that the election to waive it is something that the employee has. But it's also a protection if they want to take it. Yeah, as you hinted, it seems like there's some some pros from this ruling on on both sides of the aisle. It seems like the the plaintiffs and the defendants yeah. um, have some good things to take out of it. The the first question is answered in the way that Nordstrom would have it. The second one, the way the plaintiffs would, and the third one, sort of in between. So is um, it seems like this is less of a a win for one side and a loss for another, and sort of just a, a flexible common sense arrangement that tries to make things ideal for both parties. Is that fair? Right. Well, and I, you know, I say from an, from an employer side, the, it is a great comfort to an employer to know that they have the flexibility to schedule on the, on a set work week. And from a managerial standpoint, not um, having to worry that they're calculating each individual employee's days on when they're working in that regard. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, because of how people could string things together, sure. and, and 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 that. So from a pragmatic standpoint, I think this the answer from the California Supreme Court is incredibly helpful. And what's interesting, right, is that that it's that in, that helpful question isn't really one of the questions that was front and center at the bench trial mm-hmm. at the court, trial court level. But the ultimate answer became really helpful. Sure. Yeah. So it's. Interesting to see how questions develop as they get up into the appellate courts and see what's really important. Okay, then maybe right. the last question: What uh, what do you think the if you're an attorney practicing in this space in labor and employment, what are the, the most important things that you have to to take on board after reading this ruling? Well, I, we just talked about one of them: one that that the employers in that regard should feel confident in their scheduling. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you you employers still to a little bit will have to be aware of the hours in which people are scheduled because the the narrowing of the exemption um, by application is going to um, capture fewer people, right, than, than it was capturing, exempting them out than it was before. Um, and then from a practical side, I think employers still have to make sure that they are alerting their employees to the statutory entitlement um, so that they're aware of it. And then ensuring that they um, have practices that account for and the the day of rest if it's um, in, in their scheduling practices, or recognizing that they'll have the premium pay that trips in, but but recognizing that their employees still have a lot of flexibility and fluidity to to volunteer to work and to waive that, um, and that they. Um, and just offering the regular schedule is something that they should feel confident in doing. Okay. Well, certainly an interesting case and a fascinating uh, clarification here of the law. Wendy McGuire-Coates from Fisher Phillips, I appreciate you uh, discussing it with us. Thank you. One more time, that was Wendy McGuire-Coates, Fisher Phillips. We'll turn now to my chat with Gonzalo Martinez. Squire Patton Boggs to discuss the just granted review Cal Fire Local versus Calpers fight over just how much the latitude the state has when it seeks to to modify pension programs and pension related statutes. Very happy to welcome to the podcast now Gonzalo Martinez, appellate attorney with Squire Patton Boggs. It's a, a wealth of experience in, in particular class action litigation. Mr. Martinez, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. 
talking about a case that was just granted review by the California Supreme Court. Uh, it is in the, the class action context, uh, a union of state employees of firefighters suing the, the state pension board, the California Public Employees Retirement System. State pensions are the, the subject matter here. There's also some contract law questions and some constitutional law themes. There's a lot going on here. So we'll go ahead and get into it. Maybe at the start, though, Mr. Martinez, you could mention, I think you have some slight affiliation with this case. Is that uh, correct? Sure. I just wanted to make sure that the listeners knew that um, I worked on an early version of this case and that the lawyers representing the union here are my former law partners. They've since gone on to uh, develop their own uh, law firm, and um, I, I haven't had any involvement in this case at all in probably over five years now. Okay. Just a general curiosity, I'm sure, of the issues involved here as they seem fairly important. So We'll, uh, we'll, we'll delve right in here. There's a, a state statute at the center of this case that's being sued over. The plaintiffs want that particular statute, Government Code Section 20909, a particular provision of it to remain in effect that allowed them to have some particular right in terms of their pensions. Um, what, what exactly was that provision of 20909 that, as we'll talk about, was amended subsequently? Sure. So former Government Code Section 20909, uh, I'll call it the airtime statute, uh, just because it's a mouthful to say. Uh, the statute was enacted back in 2003 by the legislature, and what it essentially did is it allowed state employees to buy up to five years of something called service credit or airtime. Essentially, it allowed public employees for the state to buy additional years of service, and that counted towards their pension benefits at retirement. Uh, now, these years of service are then plugged into a formula that's used to calculate the amount of benefits at retirement. So generally, the more years of service you have, the higher the pension. So the plaintiffs here are essentially state firefighters and the union representing them. Um, according to the plaintiffs, the uh, airtime statute allowed their members to have some flexibility uh, to take time off, for example, to raise a child, to care for a family member or earn a degree. Um, and they were able to do these things without affecting their pension rights. Now, according to the state and the courts, what the statute did is it allowed uh, employees to artificially spike their pensions. And the theory is that they would be paid a pension uh, greater than that what greater than that to which they are entitled to, uh, given their years of actual service. Um, now, an interesting feature of airtime that we'll talk about more later is that the employees actually paid the full cost of the increased benefit up front. Yeah, I wanted to drill down a little bit on that point. So what they're paying is essentially what they'll eventually get back in, in pension benefits. So they're paying for the most part for what they're they're getting back down the line. Is that fair to say? Right. That's my understanding. The statute clearly said that the state would not pay for any part of the increased benefit. So what that meant is that the employees themselves were supposed to pay for the entire cost. Now, it would be discounted, uh, I think, for the present uh, cash value of whatever that is. But generally, the entire uh cost was supposed to be borne by the employees. Okay. Okay, so that's uh, the airtime statute 20909 as it stood until 2013 when the Public Employees Pension Reform Act was enacted and, and negated or amended that provision. What, uh, what exactly was that Pension Reform Act and, and how did it change the airtime statute? Sure. So the, the statute is known as PEPRA and it was enacted as part of the governor's pension reform in, in 2013, as you mentioned. Now, according to the state, its intent was to control pension costs and also to ensure that the continued solvency of the pension system. So essentially what Pepper did here was to repeal the airtime statute. Um, that is, it repealed the ability of not only current and future employees to buy airtime. Now, this was actually kind of unusual for a pension statute. Generally, when a benefit is uh, taken away, it only affects future employees. And, and here, uh, the statute also applied to uh, existing employees. So would that include folks that, that had not yet purchased airtime? They could no longer do it, but it, it wouldn't affect folks that had already purchased that airtime. That's right. The, the folks who had already purchased it are, are probably are, are okay. Um, they invested in the right. However, those who have not purchased it uh, would be covered by the, the statute that repealed it. Okay. So then that amendment and that uh, sort of negation of, of that right that the, the existing employees had up to that point had raises this uh, this contracts clause claim brought by the plaintiffs. It's a provision in the California Constitution and in the federal Constitution, but sort of the, the lesser litigated one as opposed to First Amendment litigation or uh, due process or equal protection, things like that. So what, what are we talking about when we talk about the contracts clause in, in the Constitution? 
Sure. So many folks actually, including a lot of lawyers, don't know a lot about the, the contracts clause. But essentially, Article 1, Section 10 of the U.S. Constitution and Article 1, Section 9 of the California Constitution both prohibit the states and government entities from, quote, impairing the obligation of contracts. Um, this prohibition applies to, you know, private contracts and to public contracts, but it's especially important in our context uh, for public contracts. So here's the general theory. Uh, the theory is that the government should not be able to enact legislation that interferes with its own contractual obligations to other parties. So think of it this way. Uh, the government can't legislate its way out of a contract by trying to change the law. And that's essentially what the union is arguing here. I think this is a good place to talk about a little about uh, California's vested rights doctrine, which dovetails with the, the contracts clause. So California law uh, gives pretty strong protection to public employee pensions under the contracts clause. In cases going back several decades, the California Supreme Court has held that pensions are essentially a form of deferred compensation in exchange for state employees' labor. So what that means is that even though pension benefits are technically enacted by statute, California law recognizes them as being contractual in nature, and thus it applies the protections of the contracts clause. What this means is that pension rights become vested. Um, essentially, they can't be changed by the government employer unless the modifications meet uh, a, spe a specific test. And I'll, I'll give you the broad outlines of that test now. So under the case law, this means that once a pension right is, is vested, it can't be modified unless, one, it's necessary for the viability of the pension system, and two, the employee receives some sort of comparable new benefit to compensate for the lost benefit. Um, the, the broader theory is that just like an employer can't withhold salary due after an employee has performed his labor, the pension benefits similarly cannot be withheld, even if they're not immediately due and paid until retirement. Okay. Uh, maybe then we could sort of synthesize all that. You could briefly outline to me what exactly the plaintiff's claim is with the vested rights doctrine in mind, the, the amendment here. What uh, What is their, the core of their argument? The plaintiff's essential argument is that what the state did by enacting PEPRA is it withdrew uh, an existing vested right that they had that could not be taken away. And in, in their mind, this means that the, the contracts clause is violated and the state is not allowed to essentially withdraw uh, the airtime statute as applied to them. Now, the trial court held against the plaintiffs, is that correct? Yes. That decision is appealed to the first appellate district, which uh, gives a, a fairly thorough walkthrough of all the questions that are presented here and, and sets up and knocks down some of the plaintiffs' claims. They, they affirm the trial court and hold against the, the plaintiffs here first, just so we, we have a, a sense of exactly what the, the Court of Appeal is, is wrestling with. Let's, let's talk about what the, the questions that the California Supreme Court will deal with, and then we'll talk about how the appellate court dealt with them. So what are the, the questions presented to the California Supreme Court upon which uh, cert was just granted? Sure. So the, the court's actual order is silent on the questions it took review on. Um, so in this slide, there, there are kind of two competing sets of questions, but they're pretty substantially. The first is uh, a set of questions posed by the union in its petition for review. And then there's a second set that's actually on the court's website uh, for uh, the press and the general public. And I'll go through these and they dovetail nicely. Um, so the union's questions, there's three, and I'm paraphrasing here. The first is, does the contracts clause in the California Constitution prevent the legislature from eliminating a statutory pension benefit without providing employees a new advantage? The second question is, is a statutory pension benefit protected by the contracts clause only if the statute expressly says the benefit cannot be modified or eliminated? Third question, is airtime a vested pension right? So here are the questions now on the court's website, which are pretty similar but a little more narrow. And again, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, the first question, was the option to buy airtime a vested pension benefit for public employees enrolled in CalPERS? Uh, second question, if so, did the legislature's withdrawal through PEPRA violate the contracts clause of the federal and state constitutions? Now, at this point, listeners might be interested in uh, why CalPERS is involved. And just by way of background, CalPERS uh, essentially administers the pension benefits at issue, and it, it does so for all state employees. The union sued CalPERS to have it keep applying the airtime statute as to them. Um, CalPERS actually agreed or seemed to agree with the unions that airtime was a vested right, um, so it declined to enforce the uh, PEPRA. And uh, the state of California intervened to defend PEPRA. 
just as a point of appellate procedure, if the order is silent as to the questions granted review, uh, the court's website includes those particular stated ones, but they're not, they don't spring from the order. Uh, do you, you default kind of to the, the questions presented in the, the petition for review with the, the union put forward? Uh, generally, that would be right. Uh, the court would review those questions that are in the petition. And if it wanted to make them narrow, generally that would happen in, in the order itself. But since the order is silent, um, it's a pretty strong indicator. It's going to take the questions as the union posed them. Okay. Then uh, we'll go ahead and unpack those as the, the Court of Appeals did. Perhaps first, the issue of, of whether this right to purchase airtime is a, a vested right. So maybe first, um, the argument that you touched on in describing the statutory context is that pensions are an element of compensation, and they're, they're part of the employment contract of public employees in California. So um, pensions, they're vested. So why does the Court of Appeal, which affirmed the trial court, find otherwise here? So according to the, uh, the the Court of Appeal, there's at least two reasons. And, and the first is that the uh, the contracts clause has to be read in harmony with the ability of government as a sovereign to legislate as necessary. That makes sense as a general proposition. Uh, the, the second reason is that uh, state employment is held by statute, not contract. And for this point, it reaches back to an older case named uh, Miller versus State of California. Now, in that case, the court found that state employees had no vested right to work past a certain age. Now, Miller made sense on its facts, but extending Miller uh, to here does not make so much sense. And, and here's why. You know, it's generally true that the uh, the terms and conditions of state employment are generally governed by statute and that those statutes can be changed at any time. And that's exactly what happened in the Miller case. But it's also true that pension benefits are recognized as vested under California law. Now, taken to an extreme, Miller could wipe out such protections, but clearly it's not the approach that the California Supreme Court has taken. It has protected pension rights created by statute. Now, interestingly enough, the California Supreme Court has actually reaffirmed the vested rights doctrine in a number of contexts. There's a, a case um, I'll refer to as REOC. It's Retired Employees Association of Orange County. Now, that case actually held that uh, vested rights can even be created by implication. That means that there's such a thing as implied vested rights uh, protected by the contracts clause. Now, that's a pretty broad interpretation of what can be protected under the contracts clause. And these kinds of implied vested rights arise from conduct as opposed to from statute. Um, in, in the context of implied vested rights in the REOC case, the California Supreme Court imposed a higher burden on, plain, on plaintiffs claiming an implied vested right by contract. And uh, the REOC case will become important because it, the Court of Appeal here relied on it for some of its reasoning. Okay. Uh, then we can continue through the, the Court of Appeal's reasoning. Then you mentioned that the panel notes that the, the contracts caused claim could be, be vitiated a bit by the, the fact that California public employment is held by statute rather than contract. I think the, the response from plaintiffs to that point would be, and, and probably was an oral argument, that, well, hey, there's a, there is a statute here, 20909 was a statute. It, it guaranteed this right. So, you know, why is that argument not convincing to, to the panel? Sure. So here is how the Court of Appeal reasoned. Um, so it, it said that there was nothing in the text of the statute or its legislative history that, quote, unambiguously states an intent by the legislature to create a vested pension benefit, end quote. Uh, according to the court, that kind of explicit uh, and ambiguous statement is required by the REOC case. Now, as I mentioned, REOC actually involved implied pension rights. And in that context, requiring uh, some sort of explicit intent in the statute or the legislative history makes sense. Um, according to the unions, applying REOC in the context of express statutory pension rights, uh, which is what we have here since there's a, a statute, uh, doesn't make any sense. The airtime statute itself created the vested right, and that's essentially all that is needed. So that, that that's the essential point there. Okay. The Court of Appeals does go a little bit further and, and say, well, even if there is a vested right, even if we say that this right has vested, even if that's true, why does the, the Court of Appeals say, nonetheless, you know, we're not talking about a contracts clause violation? What's the reasoning that even if this rights are vested, there's, there's not a problem here? So the Court of Appeal gives a few reasons. Um, according to the court, the state is allowed to make reasonable modifications to the pension system. 
and public employees rights and any fixed or definite benefits, but only to a substantial or reasonable pension. It stretches these uh, these concepts, which do exist in, in, in pension law, in uh, some interesting ways. Um, so as I previously mentioned, uh, pensions can be modified uh, if they're reasonable, and, and the reasonableness is determined by uh, a test, to it, and there's two parts of this test. One, is it related to the theory of a pension system? i.e. does it keep the pension system, is it necessary to keep the pension system viable? And two, if the employees, um, whether the employees receive a comparable benefit. So those are the two prongs of, of that test. The court found that uh, PEPRA satisfied the first part of the test. It, it was clearly related uh, in its rationale. Uh, it was clearly related to the governor's 12-point plan to provide stability to the pension system and to compensate for actual time worked, not for airtime. Uh, the court actually, the court of appeal went further and it found that airtime, in its view, was contrary to the theory of the pension system and that all that Pepper did was it merely fixed this. So according to the, uh, according to the court, the unions did not challenge this finding and instead only challenged the second part of the test, whether or not the, uh, the employees received a comparable benefit. Because as you say, the, the amendment does seem to relate to trying to make the pension program solvent. But that second part, whether the removal of a benefit, the ability to purchase this airtime was replaced by some offsetting um, benefit um, to, to compensate. And interestingly, at the, the trial court level, the trial court there ruled that this wasn't actually a detriment. The, the amendment that disallowed folks from purchasing airtime is not legally or should not legally be viewed as a detriment so that in that two-prong test, you wouldn't need any offsetting benefit. What's the argument there for why disallowing this practice is not a, a detriment? Great question. So the reasoning here is actually a little opaque. Um, the Court of Appeal and the trial court essentially agreed that airtime uh, was something valuable for public employees. That you know, it, it, it was something that mattered to them. It 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 had some financial benefit, but they focused on the fact that the employee and not the state paid for the benefit. Now, in the court's view, this meant that airtime was not like a typical retirement benefit that the employer provided in exchange for the employee's labor. In other words, it was not a form of deferred compensation like many other uh, retirement benefits are, for example, health care or even increased um, uh, cost of living increases. I mean, it just wasn't like those typical kinds of pension benefits. Um, now, the Court of Appeal doesn't elaborate on this rationale, but presumably this means that it doesn't think airtime is like these other benefits. In other words, in the Court of Appeal's mind, airtime isn't something that was earned through the public employee's labor and then was going to be later paid out in retirement. Um, and the court, again, focuses a lot on, on the fact that the, uh, the employees paid for the airtime and that it wasn't earned. Now, the unions in their uh, their petition for review argue that this ignores that the option to buy airtime kicks in only after five years of state service. In other words, the union's position is that they have to earn the option to buy airtime through their labor. Even if the Court of Appeals notes here that this could be rightly viewed as a detriment, not being allowed to purchase those credits any longer, nonetheless, there's still, in the Court of Appeals, you not a contracts clause violation here. Uh, what's the reasoning there? So according to the court, the state... Uh, was not obligated to provide a new advantage. Um, and for that, it relied on a recent decision uh, from the same court, um, Marin Association of Public Employees. According to the Marin case, uh, the California Supreme Court's preferred articulation of the rule um, is not that governments must provide an offsetting benefit, but rather that they should. And because should is permissive, there is no obligation to provide an offsetting new advantage. Now, according to the unions, this reading ignores mo more recent pronouncements from the high court, as well as decades of court of appeal decisions. Um, and, and I should note that the Marin case is actually uh, before the California Supreme Court now. So it, it's apparently the high court is going to weigh in on this issue. Sure. Yeah, that seems like an interesting issue of a, a statutory interpretation of a statute says should. What exactly does should mean? How do you have to try to do it? Does it just mean you can opt not to? It, that seems like an interesting question. Right. I mean, what what happens is that the Marin case uh, kind of changes the law in, in this area to the extent that prior case law indicated that 
for a pension to be reasonable, part of the test is whether or not an employee received an offsetting compensation. And when you have a court, a court of appeal case saying, well, no, there's no requirement there, um, it's really uh, permissive, it's not mandatory. That is, is probably a change, and it, it's probably uh, one of the reasons why it's in front of the California Supreme Court now. Yeah, I wanted to, to get into maybe the, the broader reasons why the California Supreme Court took this case up. I mean, we walked through the technical legal arguments on on either side, but some of the, the broader maybe policy-based questions certainly are, are at play. Could you paint for me the, the broader picture in terms of the, the equities on either side here? What uh, policy considerations are most uh, primarily at play in this case? Sure. So uh, on the one hand, you have state employees who have worked for several years under the presumption that they're going to have certain benefits, right? And CalPERS has even told them that they have the benefit and, and they relied on this. It takes uh, you know five years of labor to be able to buy airtime. Now, the certainty uh, of retirement benefits is a great inducement to state service, which you know state service generally pays less than the federal government and, and generally less than the private sector. And so according to the unions, for example, their members relied on the promise of these rights as an inducement not only to go work for the state, but to continue working for the state. Now, on the other hand, you have uh, states and local governments charged with ensuring that the pension system uh, remains viable and doesn't collapse and that it's fully funded. And uh, governments are accountable not only to their employees, but to the general public. Um, and of course, you have taxpayers, right? The system is funded not only by public employee contributions, but also by the taxpayers. And as pension benefits in the private sector have declined or, or just been eliminated entirely, state retirement benefits seem very generous by contrast. So there are, you know, some concerns in in, uh, in, in the press in particular that, you know, in retirement, um, some public employees are receiving six-figure pensions. And the concern is that airtime inflates pension benefits in some ways. So, you know, these are the general policy issues at stake. Yeah, those are certainly weighty considerations on either side. Between those two equities and maybe in terms of the legal arguments as well, do you have a sense of, in your view, which side has the, the more compelling arguments here? You know, I think there's pretty good arguments on both sides, in, in part because you have these strong competing provisions. You know, on the side of the unions, you have a statute expressly creating a benefit. Um, it requires five years of service before it, it kicks in. So it's in exchange for their, for their labor. There is no cost for the state because employees are paying the full cost. And then they receive no benefit in exchange for the withdrawal. Um, now, again, on the other side, the state has a, a pretty uh, good argument as well. Um, it, you know, its argument is that airtime is not a real true pension benefit entitled to vested rights protection. In other words, it's not a form of, comp of deferred compensation that should be protected. Uh, and the state also argues that it has broad rights to define pension benefits, which seems like a strong argument on its face, but it's, it's subject to a lot of exceptions under the case law. This case seems to be one in the context of, of others that now and in, in the future we'll, we'll look at just what's okay for, for governments to do to rearrange perhaps pension plans like this to make them more solvent as you know population rises and the baby boomer generation retires. Is this a, the kind of case we might we might see again? Absolutely. Pension matters are, are widely litigated, not only at the state um, and local level, but nationally as well. Uh, the difference is that a few is that few states other than California give the degree of protection to to pension rights that California does. You know, in fact, the California California law is called the California Rule um, because it, it gives such broad protection to, to public employee uh, pension rights. Uh, now, a number of states, including, for example, uh, New Jersey, Wisconsin, and Michigan, have actually cut back on uh, on pension rights, and, and in part, it's because the, uh, the, the they don't have the same protection that they do in California. So a key question is whether California is going to continue to enforce the vested rights doctrine in the same shape that it has for the past few decades. And uh, my my sense uh, is that it probably will, and we, we can talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, with that in mind, with California generally having fairly strong employee pension rights and, and programs. How do you think the, the California Supreme Court, uh, with that in mind, might be, be viewing the arguments on either side here? And if you had to guess, how do you think they might, might come down on this case? 
Sure. So, you know, for, for decades, California law protecting public employee pensions has been pretty strongly in favor of public employees. There have been some exceptions where they've curtailed a few things, but on the whole, it, it's generally a favorable body of law. Uh, so, in fact, in, in one of the last big pension cases, uh, the high court issued the uh, the Retired Employees Association of Orange County, which I mentioned before, it largely reaffirmed the broad outlines of the vested rights doctrine. Now, what was surprising about that case is that it was authored by uh, Justice uh, Chin, who is generally considered to be one of the more conservative members of the court. So that was pretty interesting. And then since the REOC case came down, there are several new members of the court, including Justice Liu, uh, Justice Cuellar, and uh, Justice Kruger, and they're widely considered to be liberals, but they're also generally seen as being pragmatic. And I think all the justices will also be somewhat sympathetic, at least in principle, to the idea that pension reform is necessary to keep the pension system viable. So in light of all that, I expect the court will probably reaffirm the vested rights doctrine and um, reject the court of appeals reasoning. Uh, this means it'll recognize, you know, statutes create express vested rights without any requirement saying uh, that they're vested. And it's going to reaffirm that a public employer must provide an offsetting new advantage. Um, you know, th these are both the cornerstones of the vested rights doctrine. Of course, you know, the California Supreme Court does not grant review just because it thinks the lower courts got it wrong. Um, given the union's questions presented, the high court, you know, it, it's conceivable it could announce a new rule cutting back on the vested uh, pension, on the vested rights doctrine and giving governments greater control. That seems unlikely, um, especially because the state is in uh, decent financial shape right now and there's no imminent threat that the pension system is in danger of failing. Okay, well, I guess we'll have to wait a few months yet to, to see this case is not set for oral argument, yet a lot of briefs to be written and arguments to, to be posed. But uh, for the time being, I was interested in chatting about it. Uh, Gonzalo Martinez of Squire Patent Boggs. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And with that, our program for May 12th. 2017 is complete. Thanks one more time to all of my guests and for you as well for tuning in. It's much appreciated. Don't forget that one CLE credit can easily be yours. Just find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. I'm Brian Cardell. I look forward to talking to you next Friday. Have a great week. <laughs>